But as, episode what? Uh, episode 161. All right. It's in the thing. <laughs> oh, the Yeah. <laughs> Episode 161, A View from 202. I'm back in New York City, but what I'm out of is the zone. Gentlemen, we did it. Play the music, bitches. Play it. 10-hour crab rave. We did it. I have to admit, we had some tactical missteps. Inventing the novel coronavirus 2019 was a bit of a mistake. It seems to have delayed the exit of the zone. I'll take that one on me. But we're here. What's it feel like to feel the taste of, of rain, to feel moisture in the air, to feel the slight metallic iron on your tongue from half the world burning coincidentally? It's Brit, Peaches, Sam, and Cork. On the precipice, on the lintel, on the threshold of zone exit here as Chris Armis has departed from the New York Red Bulls. How's it feel? Um, I will say that it's funny that we were, I think, the first to um, be on kind of the zone Armis outkick and also the last to be um, reporting on it as well. Would it have happened any other way, though? Yeah. No, probably not. But it does like feel um, to me that I've received great clarity. And I mean this in like no exaggeration and no hyperbole. Like it, it feels like a haze has been lifted and that um, I just I'm not confused anymore. Actions yeah. have consequences again. Yeah, that's a good right. way to put it. I mean, honestly, I feel like seeing that news on Friday was one of the best feelings I've had in a while about this team. I mean, good enough to go back on Twitter. I think I tweeted for the first time in like five years. So yeah, people were shook, Sam. They were like, Oh my God, Sam's liking my comments. So back. I, what? Yeah. What? We are as, back. As, as Sass put it on the Twitter machine, uh, looks like there's, there's finally pride in this club again. Somebody showing pride. Which gives you have to say that we have to get really, I think, into how and why and what was said by Lord Thelwell uh, when he did it. Because one, you know, despite my uh, admittedly a bit of sort of grave dancing to start there, I don't mean to actually dance on the grave. You know, as we've said a million times, Chris Armas seems like a nice man, despite some acting up recently. But uh, I think really the excitement that we're feeling in, in kind of release is kind of what was said in the press conference. And if you haven't listened to the 17 minute press conference by Kevin Thelwell kind of uh, convened um, over zoom as is everything on Friday morning, uh, I highly, highly recommend it. I was kind of joking about maybe just starting this episode with 17 minutes of that kind of like when Peaches started <laughs> the episode with three minutes of Jesse screaming in German. What is Deutschlich? What is, what is the go-to Spanglish version of German Peaches? Deutschlich, I'll call it that. Uh, but Germlish, Germlish. All right. Um, yeah. But yeah, seriously. If and and I actually haven't even gotten to the the MSG pregame and and halftime segments, which I think apparently added some more details to it. But uh, I think just a lot of the things that that well very professionally and reasonably rolled out um, felt very like like a sanity check 
on for us particularly like it, it was just a, you have to say it was a lot of things we've been talking about for the last year and a half that makes me feel much less insane about stuff about the you know results not necessarily matching or not being the same thing as long-term direction and standards and uh quality of the club and kind of asserting casually that like you know red bull new york is a big club that's been inundated with offers already because it's a great job to have and it should be a desirable position but yeah what 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 can what else can be said about this kevin thelwell presser on friday morning here i would like to thank kevin thelwell for being um a loyal listener um, myself. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe yeah, the media. <laughs> the media is Kevin Thelwell was sending clips of, of you from two hundred two to Chris Armis, and Armis was just getting irate. He's like, I don't understand any of this. Are they recording in a in a can? Why why are these all? Why are there constant Cormac McCarthy references? Who is Ben Mindstand? Um, <laughs> who can blame him for losing his temper a little bit? But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's like it. I think it's both clarity that that we know um, what you know a a person whose whose literal job is to to decide how good things are going here. Um, no, it's clarity to know what that person thinks. And it's also clarity in the sense of we we now know that we're, we we kind of knew when he got hired earlier this year and and installed in that new head of sport role whatever that means, um, forced into that role, we knew that it meant that there is finally a chain of command, a clear chain of command of who has responsibility when for, for the club's well-being here. Um, yeah. we, we had pretty much since Jesse left, because, because the last year or two of, of Jesse being the manager here, um, you know, we obviously had uh, Hamlet you know, gone upstairs after Ali Curtis left. Um, but it, you know, it was pretty clear that that was a partnership with Jesse and, you know, that, you know, it was all centralized there. And then after Jesse left and, uh, you know, it became an Armis Hamlet, you know, kind of show, it was less clear, especially when results and performances started to decline, who actually would make the call eventually mm -hmm. if, if, you know, push came to shove. And, you know, after, you know, we had, we had the little tidbits here and there for a year or so about that Ralph Ragnick and uh, Paul Mitchell were maybe going to start overseeing New York and Brazil more closely. And there was always kind of, you know, them, them coming and visiting, you know, Red Bull Arena and Harrison for a game or two. Um, but it never really seemed to amount to any sort of official, like, uh, you know, any, any sort of state of the club kind of pulse check on, on what actually, you know, the powers that be thought about the performances and results here. And now we, we finally have that, you know, emphatically, um, after this, this press conference, especially. Yeah. Cork last, last October, November, I don't know, after we lost to Philly in the playoffs <clears throat> last year, which can hardly even remember sort of your material, but you, you tweeted kind of like a half joke, uh, yeah, you know, being like that now the eyes of the world or the eyes of history turn to you, Mister Whoever it is that hires and fires the manager at Red Bull New York, and I feel mm. like I've been thinking about that, you know, pretty much this season because I feel like that really did put towards like a lot of the specific frustration as 2019 dragged on. Because I feel like we kind of shifted to like, all right, the manager doesn't really have it fully together. Then like, 
to being like, wow, like what is going on with like the the larger squad and roster strategy? What are you know? Why are we alienating players? Why can't we sign guys? What's going on with Hamlet? To then that feeling of like, oh my god, are there no adults home? Is no one home in the room? Like, is no like who is in charge? So I think that yeah, that release in particular and feeling like there's a strategy and a guy with clear eyes feels feels really huge. To you me. know, I, it's not it's not necessarily to single out it being a problem just with Armas because, you know, it could have been a problem if things went south with Jesse, you know, uh, just, just having his friend or longtime colleague Hamlet being the only other theoretical technical authority figure at the club. And now, yeah, that is not, that is not an issue anymore. We have a person who was specifically hired for the job, not just, you know, kind of moved into the job, you know, as part of a power play. Um, we have a person who was specifically headhunted and hired for the job who has staked his career, a, a pivotal part of his career mm-hmm. on making sure this club is as strong as it can be. And this is what he thinks is best for that. And I think it's, you know, it's the it's definitely the beginning of something. I mean, you know, I will get into that later. I mean, you can't expect uh, that that he just thought, you know, that you make a decision like this thinking that, you know, it's the, yeah, I guess to backtrack, he's not making this decision thinking that we're going to win to try and win MLS cup 2020 or whatever it's going to be. Right. This is a, this is a much more long-term thing, but it's, you know, it's clear that he is, you know, not satisfied with, with, you know, the performances and he would want to do better and he wants to have his name attached to something better. And we will see what that ends up being. I thought noteworthy to me about what Thelwell said in, I think, the interview, or maybe it was the press conference, I don't remember which, but he did he did kind of throw um, a bone to MLS Cup people being like, hey, we're going to win MLS Cups. And he also said, most notably to me, um, that we're going to make people enjoy watching the New York Red Bulls again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a couple of... of nuggets in there that that really uh, kind of pop out but I, again it's like i don't know maybe i'm just reading too much or i, I think about this stuff too much i suppose by definition we think about this stuff too much because we have a podcast about the red bulls which is sort of insane thing to do about any soccer team but um i think uh the uh aspects of the firing or some of the decisions are also really interesting in this light too because hamlet doesn't go which I think at a certain mm-hmm. point we sort of maybe subconsciously assumed might happen as well. I think the long, like the longer the arm is stuck around, the more presumed it felt or, or that they were sort of some kind of unit. Um, although there was, there is kind, there has kind of been like a, a minor, I'd say, like counter narrative, like that really tries to focus on Hamlet kind of being really like the sporting director and accountable. So it's it, it does pop out to me though that it does that's not. Hamlet who goes with him and CJ Brown basically being singled out and being the only other first team staff to depart feels quite meaningful really. Um, because this is, it demonstrates that there was no compunction. There's no hesitation to fire more than one guy. It wasn't just like, all right, let's not rock the boat. Um, but that this is the one guy that Armis 
hired himself basically and was not here before and goes with mm-hmm. him immediately. And then, you know, their comment that was pretty clear about like the standards and, and kind of uh, training and, and technical aspects, just not really being up to snuff for them, even though he said they're, they're great, hardworking guys, um, which, which also feels very much like, like there was technical and, strategic and and coaching acumen just missing from those guys and kind of missing from the specific armis element of the coaching mm-hmm. um, it's also it's also interesting with cj brown too because the defense hasn't you would think cj brown is a kind of a defensive coach knowing his background and yeah. defense hasn't necessarily been the problem so that that's another interesting angle to it too that he still leaves yeah that's true yeah and then um you know with with the the gap in um, the interim being named it's only twenty four hours. I have to, I'll disclaim actually that this is the point where I I try to check myself on you know indulging too much like timeline speculation and and mm-hmm. all of that and getting too specific. So disclaiming that it is kind of speculation, I will say though that that there are still some larger like high level aspects to the timeline here that set the mind wondering where. Uh, it seems like there there was some sort of um, trigger, some sort of last straw that was hit here. Um, that one, we do have Thelwell confirm that you know COVID has been a factor, and I think delaying this this decision and this appraisal, and that he says in the press conference that it has taken him longer than he would have thought or would have liked, you know, to be able to like kind of make this assessment and act on it than he expected, which is interesting. And then um, the fact that we lose uh, against DC at home and then um, Armis then departs that week, but the press conference is not really set up in the morning. The press release is sort of very as minimal as it can be. And the interim is not um, named until the next day. All of this with the match in, coming up on Sunday in 48 hours. And there aren't player quotes necessarily lined up. Um, it sort of it's, it pops out to me, at least, that there, there seems to have been some sort of proximate um, ignition here. Uh, which is sort of interesting. It, it, I, I, what do you, what do you think? I guess on that front, do you think? Does it seem to you that there might have been some sort of uh, last straw that made the decision easy for Thelwell, or is it all sort of incidental? I think one factor might have just to maybe play devil's advocate and maybe put a little bit more of an innocent factor on it is that uh, we were coming up ahead of a, of a long week now for the first time in a while, a long break. I mean, um, between games, we're not playing until Saturday after not playing or after last playing Sunday. Um, and it's just been a, such a quick turnaround of games in the last, you know, both in Orlando and since they restarted in the stadiums that um, I think kind of uh, uh, maybe, maybe there's an element of wanting to keep keep that rhythm going or, or not wanting to um, you're not not feeling like there's too much to be gained from from just little stretch, you know, small little training sessions here and there. But uh, but, yeah, I think it's it's kind of a thing where the you know, we, we had the loss against D.C. on Wednesday night, not necessarily the most dire performance that we've had uh, in, in the recent times. I mean, obviously, there's the late goal and it's never good to lose to a rival at home. But as far as the actual um, technical performance itself, like not necessarily the worst we've seen 
um, in recent, you know, in this this year at least under Armas, and then and and then obviously we're gonna, we'll talk about it later, but a, a draw before that at Foxborough, so not even like the most, you know. Uh, you know, unacceptable results that we've, we've had under Armas so far. So I think, you know, for that reason, there, there maybe is a little bit of like, you know, the schedule being a factor and just thinking that, you know, the, the rhythm of the schedule made it, you know, the right time to, to make a, to make a move and, and give, you know, give a little throwaway game for, you know, who Carnell, who ended up being the interim to, to throw the guys out there and then have a full week of, of training without kind of the disruption of the firing at the beginning of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're, they're definitely the, the, the fact that, yeah, that even, even with him saying that, that COVID prevented a lot of the, the appraisal that he wanted to do or delayed a lot of the appraisal that he wanted to do. The fact that we still went through several games after the league restarted before making the decision, this decision means that, uh, there had to have been at least some things, some part of the decision happened within the last, you know, few weeks that, you know, Thelwell wasn't as urgent about before. Yeah, no, I think, I, think I, I was going to say that I, I imagine he was in the hot seat at the start of the season um, or at least during the off season. Um, and if it wasn't six games with the long break, I, you know, I, I figure it maybe would have been only a week or two further down, you know, in, in February or March, if we'd had a regular season that the decision would have been made. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that like the DC game played into it as much as everybody thinks. I think it's kind of a convenient thing to have happened and yeah. get the fan base riled up. But I don't think, I think Delwell already had it in mind and was kind of just waiting for the right moment. Yeah. I mean, Delwell, I think said as much that he was just kind of, um, you know, his assessment seemed to be that it was going to happen. Um, I think what's going to happen is that like two months down the line, we'll have a cute tweet from some club insider who will say, oh man, if only you knew what happened after the DC game. Yeah. Although I, I tend to think that that might've already happened. I mean, without, without, uh, you know, getting too much in the pig, pig trough itself, I did. There is kind of an element here where there seems to be a last minute, um, implication or like reinvention of trying to imagine that like a lot of the roster exodus might have been somehow separate from the uh, Armis Hamlet duo and to that front page to that theme like if 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 that were the case if it were true that like you know Robles and BWP were being sent away like with against their wishes or anything absolutely 100% we would have been hearing about it like nonstop uh, until now so Mm -hmm. um, I I don't know we'll see it's I think it's I, I anticipate and I think we probably all agree that, you know, Bradley Carnell is not really the next coach and, and not to read it too much into it. And, and I think Bellwell, um, you know, I think was being professional and polite by saying that he has a chance because, you know, maybe he doesn't have a chance, but no, no reason really to say like, fuck no. Um, but uh, well, they were very I think this the, the difference in language when Armas got appointed and Carnell being in trim is, I think very like noteworthy that Armis was just like very confidently named head coach and Carnell yeah. wasn't. Well, can also, can and you imagine you, a more different context or circumstance? Not right. You know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you brought up the whole, whole roster thing. Um, and we haven't recorded between when like, I guess like the, the Ives article came out or, you know, in general, I feel like this narrative has really been pushed right before the DC game about, um, the the roster not being strong enough maybe they're i think 
isn't one inciting event particularly that caused Armis to um, be sacked, but you know, I think there was definitely an anticipation of it almost in a way, and it, it, like the the timing of everything is just like r- really too on the nose almost, you know. Yeah, there, there did seem to be some sort of swell and press that was a little unprecedented. I guess you're you're right about that, but I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get conspiratorial because at the end of the day, I guess it's sort of beside the point because Stellwell said everything correct. If we're not the podcast <laughs> wanted... that's going to do that, who is, Britt? Yeah, we, we need to really enter into the true Anon space of uh, <laughs> Red Bull podcast. Um, but I guess the thing about Carnell that I would say is that keeping in mind of not trying to like overread his comments because I do think he's a pure interim, uh, his comments is his little brief like three-minute interview or whatever on Saturday, once he'd been named, I thought to be maybe uh, perhaps unintentionally telling, because he he had mentioned um, kind of not just his job being sort of just to get the guys out on the field and kind of together and not try to like introduce every groundbreaking tactic to them uh, also soon and try to like really prove himself like as, you know, classy tactical genius which i think is totally correct and uh you know notwithstanding that the result wasn't good i think it's obviously still the it's the appropriate thing to do as the interim manager and not get ahead of yourself but there was also the the comment um kind of mentioning like not not getting too specific and not developing um like very hyper specific i think was the term he used yeah Yeah, like hyper specific like he didn't say scouting reports but like in my paraphrase memory scouting reports of of the opponent and kind of trying to break things down which felt very very familiar to me i mean we kind of the one example we kind of have been seizing on from last year is the most extreme and ridiculous is the vancouver thing when when uh armis like and said that you know they it actually wasn't armis it was it was a player who said that like armis had told them to do that but yeah still yeah this Uh, is this is like the equivalent of the sarah palin like i can see russia from my house thing i guess where like (laughs) she didn't actually literally say it it was snl but she in essence said it so it's sort of immaterial but Uh, but yeah not not to cut you off but that they to kick the ball at the player's hands to get yeah yeah because because that's that was the scouting report on vancouver Right. Um, But I, you know, I anticipate my my diagnosis of the team the last year is that even in less ridiculous cartoonish versions as that, like it it did seem like that Mm -hmm. was sort of what our approach was that Armis was maybe getting like a uh, scouting file from the scout and analytics team and like circling one bullet point or something and really focusing on that, like at the detriment of the larger picture and not really doing analytics. Right. So I I think that, I think Carnell was trying to say nothing, but may have accidentally like subconsciously like tipped his hand at that. Um, But it also kind of jived, I think with the larger uh, diagnosis implicitly offered by Felwell too, of, of kind of the results being um, divorced from the idea of there being a larger bigger picture of trying to achieve kind of a, a bigger mm-hmm. project and, and right. in the long term. Uh, well, I, I feel like Carnell's comments specifically about, you know, not trying to overthink stuff or to do too much um, found its way a little bit into the gameplay of the, of the game we'll eventually talk about. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that he kind of simplified things for the team in a way where um, the players themselves aren't over, over thinking themselves into pretzels every time they get the ball anymore. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that was noticeable. Mm. 
But. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, are there any other are there any other aspects or other stones I haven't kind of unturned about this about this decision? I mean, I mean, unless I mean, unless you want to save like future speculation for for future times, which I think is you know, probably a good move. But yeah, yeah. well, Peter, maybe maybe we can. Uh, use that as use your segue as a bridge maybe into the game discussion i um so it's been three mm. games i guess since we've last recorded uh been a long one we if can you, ignore the first two now <laughs> yeah. if you uh i can't remember if i mentioned this last episode but in case you didn't we, we did put a little blog post out basically saying that due to covid and sort of at the time the zone that uh you know just like <laughs> And the the kind of faster schedule of like this makeup schedule that we weren't necessarily going to try to dogmatically do one episode per game per se, just because it's not possible. So that's why we have three, I think, this week, even though Lord knows we would have liked to probably record between the firing and, and game on Sunday. But the results of the last three games were a draw and two losses. Of course, the first is a draw at uh, away at the Revolution, where Amir scores and we draw one-one. A loss to DC uh, at the Death at RBA one-zero, and then uh, Sunday's kind of recoil loss three-zero uh, um, at home in air quotes to, to Philly. Um, I was in the process of moving hell for the Revs game um, and the DC game for that matter, uh, but. I don't know. As Pete just said, do these games not matter anymore? What, what, are there? Are there? We've already talked a little bit about the DC game. Or Cork, you talked a bit about it not being our worst technical display per se. But is are, are they, how does that analysis hold up? Maybe for the Rebs game. Honestly, well, like the Rebs just- game, like to to like kind of piggyback on what I said earlier. Like the Rebs game might have been one of our you know, low bar, I, I, I realize, but better performances in recent times, um, given that it was a road game against what's a, you know, pretty solid revolution team. And, uh, yeah, it, we, we looked, it, it was like a lot of our games where we come out with some energy and we come out with guys running and just, you know, just pure, pure kind of will and force gets us kind of looking sharp. And then as the game goes on and Armas kind of, you know, starts doing some of his tinkering, you know, the foot comes off the gas and guys get more tentative and, and all that kind of happens. But, um, yeah, not even, not even necessarily our worst performance given it was, you know, on the road against a decent team. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's about all you can really gather out of new England at this point. There's no point in really speculating on, you know, player selections or, you know, tactics or anything like that. Well, I was going to say on the player selection side though, we did come out with, um, I guess what some might consider a rotated lineup or at the very least a younger lineup. And I thought that the energy that we saw from right. Well, I mean, Kaku is, is a rotation player (laughs) under the arm. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I thought that like the energy that we saw was just like really indicative of kind of the hunger and the talent that we have from our younger players. And, um, you know, ultimately it wasn't like as fruitful, but, you know, like Omir and Ben Mind combining for a goal was pretty sick to see. Um, and, you know, like with that in mind, um, obviously, I think if we recorded after that game, we would say, you know, things about how Armis um, and the way that he's been like conservative about his roster selection, about choosing players like Mark Shikovsky and Royer um, have 
been hampering maybe maybe our potential uh, maybe the development of some of these players but you know um like at the end of the day like bad result is is kind of uh of course just like similar to all the other kind of games where we come out strong like cork was saying and then get duller over the course of the game um but you know i think there is a takeaway from that and it, it's panned out in its its own way um omir obviously gets a start against dc um right or am i uh i don't even like honestly i like i just can't even remember any of these like um, you said it was a fog that is that is now right yeah like the haze is gone i can see clearly now the The, uh i would say that the mines omir combination does feel very typical of a a certain kind of a type of armist game i think that popped up over the last year and a half um where it was sort of, you would get the occasional combination that would be kind of slick amongst kind of 90 minutes of nothing. Um, and I mean, how in a way, I think the, the city derby one, one zero, I think part of the, the ridiculous part of that is that it, it was a particularly extreme version of it where we didn't even, it wasn't even a slick combination. It was an error from Sean Johnson on just a mediumly decently hit shot. Um, but it seemed like Armis took that to say like, yes, that's, that's pretty much my vision of winning. That's pretty much my plan is sort of waiting out 90 games of nothing, 90 minutes of nothing and hoping, you know, waiting for that one moment of Omir combining with mines or, uh, Kaku combining with, um, Barlow in the COVID cup game against Atlanta or, uh, you know, the Barlow goal against Atlanta. Um, every, every game is a Connor laid tackle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if, too many if it doesn't work, are, if it doesn't work out perfectly, then you're just lost at sea. Yeah. yeah you got to charge up and, uh, uh, you know, get your little boost to get up in the air. Um, the, yeah, so I, th- I think that that just felt very typical of that, where like you'd get the occasional goal like that, and then just hold on for dear life. And maybe if nothing else, a what marked the decline of Armis being able to get away with it, I think, was maybe that we were no longer nicking a couple of those goals early and being able to hold on. We we're, you know, even in this New England game, we nicked that goal, but also conceded still. Or we wouldn't, and you know, in COVID Cup, I think was a really decent cross section example of. Um, not getting that goal in the first 15 to 25 minutes and then it just being a waiting game for the inverse to happen where you get sloppy mistakes and, you know, you get Amro just like knocking the ball a little bit in front of him straight to an attacker or you get an own goal that's just kind of more generally sloppy or you get a weekly, you know, defended shot from the goalkeeper that are more and more piling up, which I think dovetails into kind of another frustration of ours the last year is that, so many of our losses were unremarkable, unforced errors that were just a waiting game like that rather than being intentionally or geniusly broken down. Um, so even, I guess that's all to say, even in, even in it being one of our least worst results in recent times, it still feels indicative of kind of like just how bad the zone was in a lot of ways. So for, I guess we've talked on the DC game a bit. Do we want to touch on it more or should we talk about the Philly game on Sunday? Let's just move on. I don't have anything to say about yeah. the yeah. game. The Philly game, so I guess, Peaches, you had a comment about 
tying it to Carnell's comments about trying to be a little bit less rigid. And I, I think that was, I think that was true in, in kind of like the first half of both halves. I do think that um, the players seemed uh, a little bit less um, confused and a little bit more free. I think Cork at one point, you said that it, they're playing pickup, um, both which has its pluses and its advantages. I think all of the goals we concede are pretty, you know, describing it as pickup is a pretty good way of actually like conceptualizing the kind of mistakes that we made. But I guess I, I, I do without reading too much into like Carnell, the manager, cause again, I don't think he is the manager or will be the manager. I do get the sense that um, there was a very minimal amount of sort of addition by subtraction in some parts where uh, roles may have been a little bit clearer and guys were able to make clear steps and, and, intercept passes a little bit more and Kaku was being able to turn and hit a ball vertically a little bit more often. And guys are hitting slightly more first time crosses in, um, which of course is not to say that it was a complete performance as the scoreline clearly indicates, but I, yeah, I guess to that point, Peaches, I, I sort of agree with that, uh, that assessment that they seemed a little bit more free. Yeah. You know how like in, uh, in Dragon Ball Z, when, uh, Goku <laughs> fights Piccolo in the beginning, and he takes off like his weighted clothes and becomes more powerful. I feel like that kind of happened mentally to a lot of the players and that like it, it seemed like there were a lot of things that they didn't have to think about anymore and they could just kind of go with. And so, you know, yeah, but it was a three nil game. Like <laughs> I don't remember Sorry? my I don't remember my Dragon Ball Z well enough to remember if uh, Piccolo still loses or, or whoever. I can't remember who, which one of them is wearing the weights. I think both of them are. And then at the end, uh, Goku gets killed by Piccolo in the sacrificial act. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I just mean to note that we still, you know, we still did lose. So I'm not trying to say everything is solved, of course, but I do. I think right, Goku does die at the yeah. end of this, this fight, too. Oh, okay. Um, against perfect. Perfect. It's like yeah, early, exactly. right? So it also is when, it's when his. It's when Raditz comes, yeah, and steals so, his son. Yeah, so like very low power, like not very good. It means that we have a bunch of like arcs to get to. You right? can tell so Raditz is known all I'm because saying, we're talking about anime again. <laughs> <laughs> basically, all I'm saying is that it feels like the players had a weight lifted off of them. To a certain extent. At least I think towards the end, uh, you do see like, you know, there's a bit of quit in the squad, especially towards the third goal as well. So, you know, I, I don't yeah. want to overstate it, yeah. Yearwood with his hands up, kind of being like, All right, what's going on? Like when no one's making any runs or, or moves toward yeah. the ball. Like I feel like that kind of says it all by the end. It was it was and, a bad Yeah, but he's game. new, so he hasn't been infected yet, you know. Yeah, right. which is good. And if, like there's been some people speculating as for not speculating, but like, you know, just just uh you know, saying like, you know, though you usually expect, you know, the, I guess the term is the dead cat bounce or whatever when you fire a manager and the team is usually kind of charged up and, and does well in a few games, you know, usually under an interim or whatever. And we, you know, people are like, oh, how come that isn't what happened here? And like, again, to kind of like give myself the same disclaimer that you gave yourself earlier, Britt, where it's just like, you know, uh, don't, don't want to necessarily, you know, declare something or anything like that but just you know just using circumstance to put things together that this maybe wasn't the same the typical kind of like locker room of uh, where a coach gets fired where you know maybe armis was not as unpopular as the usual fired coach in this locker room yeah um, also like and then and then that maybe maybe this team you know uh, isn't going to have the same reaction 
to or the, this this team. The, the reason the reason Armas was fired was not necessarily because the team was unsatisfied and not and and was you know kind of not all that upset about you know the mediocrity of the results. But you know, again, kind of checking myself on judging people personally. But yeah. But I, I feel like I, I don't know. I, it's hard to put stock into any of those immediate games. I feel like as an extremely casual Everton fan, I've I've watched so many of those in the last like three, four years <laughs> because yeah. they've turned over so many coaches and they've had so many resounding four nothing, two three nothing wins with interim coaches, which then led to another period of garbage that like I just don't feel like there's really any meaning to these games at all. And so to look, so you're you saying know, it's good that we lost. I, I think it's it's it doesn't mean anything. It, you know, it's like uh, you you can't expect all of your problems to be solved, um, uh, and the rot can be deeper than you know we think or something. So I, it's, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a bad game, I, and I'm not surprised. So it, 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 I don't know. It, it's hard to like put meaning into it um, or also, like make yeah, broad like- claims like that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, just, like it was also like on that. one day's installation of Carnell. <laughs> yeah. They essentially didn't have a coach for two days. So yeah. yeah, exactly. And narratives like that just, like, become true because you make them true, right? Yeah. I mean, do you – who remembers Giggs's games or Jungberg's games? I mean, like, I think em- yeah. Emery – like, Jungberg's Arsenal lost a couple matches because under Emery, they're a mess. They're just totally a disaster. But, like, I don't think anyone was under the impression that it was a mistake to uh to fire emory you know or like that it really had a clear clear relationship or like it changed or that it changed the fact that results were unacceptable you know um so agreed on that i think sam you had an interesting point about like whether the rot might go deeper or more because i guess we have in in previous episodes we kind of speculated on like what exactly the mental shape of the team might be and what morale might be and how Armas fits into that. And you oh, you hear all the reports of Armas being liked or like sort of sort of a player's coach, at least according to some people. Um, and I, I guess that comment reminded me of the possibility that, you know, maybe the team, maybe the team is kind of disappointed that he's gone because maybe, you know, he's so real. He's he's like the chill <laughs> gym coach, right? Who like lets you turn in, never turn in your homework. Uh, so it's it's sort of, you know, kind of just mm. develops favorites and is kind of just chill with you. So it's it's possible that there is uh, kind of a disappointment going around the squad or certain parts of it that's not necessarily uh, uh it's not necessarily bad or like a good thing that they're they're disappointed, and I think rots maybe a good way to think of it, maybe because it could it could be reversed in a certain way, or it could be cleaned off or, or pruned. Um, where maybe you know once we get a, our actual next manager in, that's kind of when the repair work begins. I think so. It shouldn't mm-hmm. be too surprising that things maybe get a little gangrene um, right now. Can I ask a question about this match? Sure. Was was that result on Armis? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in in the way that everything is, um, I get. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't even really matter though, because we've already decided that the state of the team that Armis, or the state that Armis has left the team in, is not good enough, and we're still in that state, and we're going to be 
for yeah. a while. So. I do like the seizing on the Yearwood moment where he kind of he makes his debut and then he kind of tosses his hands up in frustration because by the time he'd come on the pitch was unfortunately by the time everyone had sort of quit. It might have been interesting mm-hmm. to see him on in the 50th minute or something when guys because mm-hmm. in the first time in a long time we came out in the second half and kind of looked kind of energetic and decent again because this game did kind of fit the pattern that you alluded to earlier cork of like we have come out in the last year decently the first 15 20 minutes and then just totally disappeared um that kind of happened again on sunday which is no surprise but then it kind of reproduced itself in the second half which is like huh previous games i feel like second half we just remained totally dead again we don't it's not the real manager yet but it the Changes are not yet occurring, but still kind of interesting. But Yearwood comes on, and I think he tosses his hands up in that kind of frustration that everyone had kind of quit already. And I think Mesa had an interesting tweet, you know, saying that, like, to the effect of saying that this is kind of the the a signal of, like, what's to come. Like, this is going to be a new era. Like, like this is going to be sort of Yearwood's, the Yearwood, Tete, uh, Egbo, maybe, era pointing forward of this squad which I think the last year or so, it was very painful for us to watch the S.H.I.E.L.D. squad solely be murdered or smothered in the crib. Uh, but now that that's over and we've got Yearwood here and we've still got Kaku around and we've got other guys, feels better. Yeah, I, 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 the, that, that Yearwood moment and that Yearwood you know, gesture and all that, it's something that I wouldn't necessarily like and would, it would kind of like, I, I think is kind of like a clown move, except... In in a situation like this, it's kind of interesting because it's his literally his very first minutes with the team, and it's it's right after a coach is fired, a coach who he never ended up playing for. Um, so it's basically him coming in with you know it being hyper apparent that the state of the team is not good and that mm-hmm. nobody is really going to judge him that much if he literally you know gestures it out himself that the team is not good right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this is a unique situation where that's not as much of a kind of like unprofessional thing to do. Um, it is kind of like a thing where in a situation like this, it's kind of more understandable that you would see something like that from a player who's being brought in to probably be, like you said, Britt, eventually a big leader in the spine of a new version of this team. So, yeah. Yeah, the I mean, Essex think, Tyler Adams in terms of just yeah. high school athlete energy, varsity athlete energy, right? Yeah, it really could be that. That is that does seem kind of be to be the the scouting report on him. Yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, he's a good boy, and not too. Uh, uh, he's a good lad. Please, Peaches. <laughs> Um, well, I was going to say that like we keep talking about how we, we shouldn't grade this as. Um, this is not how like Carnell's tenure as interim is going to be, but I do think that there, maybe it will be. I don't know. I just don't think he's going to be manager either way. No, no. Well, yeah. I mean, like, I don't. I don't think. I, I agree that we shouldn't take this one game to assess what what the rest of this season is going to look like. But I do think that we can take away things from what it's going to look like without Armis as as kind of a, a jumping off point because. Mm-hmm. Um, like to to that extent, like you know, um, I think Yearwood coming off, coming on and expecting more runs from players is is like what you were saying. But I think there are notably um, different types of performances from other players, and it very much feels like um, there is a different way in which performance on an individual level is going to be uh, based. And I think you know, kind of alluding to um, how they're they're talking about being competition and um you know like there's going to be the best player for spots um 
coming up soon. Like, you know, I, I think that the way that Chris Armas had positioned his team was to kind of, you know, I, th- I think we've said like fearfully, cowardly, um, but really, I think like to, to, to make minimal risk, which in turn led to bad results. But, you know, I, I look at performances from someone like Royer um, in this game who, you know, I, I've historically um, had issues with, but, you know, even even he seems to have played a lot more direct, a lot more purposefully. Um, so yeah, he had a couple I of his little flicks that like weren't actually failures. It was weird. Yeah, they came off and they were like progressive um, soccer plays instead of, you know, him just like tracking back, looking to pass back to the the center backs again. So I think like on that level, we can expect that performance for each player um, at a perceived level has has at least changed in the way that we're they're looking at themselves. Um, And I think that was most notable about this performance. Yeah, I think. Yeah, for sure. Everyone knows their jobs are on the line. yeah, I think as it's clear, I think that's true whenever any manager is fired. Um, it will be tricky to play. It, it, it'll be hard because I mean, one, it's still COVID season, right? Um, two, I think like, yeah, I mean, I don't think Carnell's. I think he understands himself to be the interim manager and isn't getting too out of hand. So I don't know how to weigh any decisions. But like three, like if you do see guys rotating, it's like you always enter that realm of like when a squad gets rotated so much, it becomes sort of impossible to read anything. I mean, that's sort of how the revs squad was that lined up. So many guys change that it's hard to figure it out, but that's not just an armist thing. Like, you know, when we, when we were in CCL and went away to RSL and, or even the home game against Portland that we won four zero, like it was so many different guys and so many weird places that they'll never really combine with each other again that it becomes so it becomes hard to really even say anything it's like a one-week zone almost um so like that that could just reproduce itself for the rest of this year as they try to give guys minutes but this also reminds me that you know with yearwood showing up and then with egbo getting kind of his first start i think or one of his first you know really appearances immediately in and tete kind of showing up as well maybe there's maybe is there an element of Gearwood, the next young DP guy coming in and Fellwell signing, finally suiting up and training and being eligible to play. Does that align with Fellwell being like, all right, it's time to move on? Good, I think. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to say that for some reason, Jason Pendant was able to walk into the squad basically immediately once he could here. But Manny Egbo has been uh, behind Kyle Duncan all season for not super clear reasons also invites speculation. I think that maybe it's kind of the time to, or Thelwell might see it as the time to like, just get start frontlining guys that he's planning around for the future rather than what's left at the existing squad. I mean, Kyle Duncan still played though. And I both played on the left. Kyle Duncan and I was, I thought it was interesting that Mira stayed in, uh, Under Carnell, because that if if you as as an outsider were to pinpoint maybe one area where the circumstances seem to point that um, Thelwell and Armas didn't see eye to eye, it might have been on Jensen, because, I mm-hmm. mean, that seems like a, a situation where like you, you know, the 
the club, the, you know, recruitment staff, whatever, literally brought in a number one European goalkeeper who had, who was installed as the starter. It seems at the start of the year, I, I guess there were injuries with Mira at the beginning of the year, but then even when that wasn't the case anymore, Jensen was still the starter in Orlando and the early parts of the restart. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. he gets pulled and you know, I would have thought that would have been one of the areas where if, if Thelwell, if that, if that was one of the main bones of contention with Armas that, you know, Thelwell's interim would have had to agree to, yeah, we're not going to do this, you know, grandstand with, you know, starting Mira over Jensen anymore, but right. that seems to still be the case. It makes you, I mean, I think that's clearly the um, case when you see, or like clearly those were, that's what the plans were when all the adverts um, in the game about the Red Bulls, like when they sent on specific players, Jensen wasn't like one, one of the ones they pulled out along yeah. with like Sean Davis or whatever. But, you know, to be quite honest, I think that Ryan Nara has just looked very good uh, as an aggressive keeper um, so far this season. So I don't like see, um, you know, like even Carnell was talking about not changing too much right now. Yeah, I think there's um, a possibility so- a point where like you're, you're overcorrecting, especially for the interim. Like, you know, if a, if a manager really comes in over the off season, which is probably likely, um, then he has a whole camp, you know, to, to promote Jensen or whatever. And it makes you wonder yeah. what, what kind of conversations might be happening. You know, like uh, what, what might, may have Thelwell been saying to Yearwood's agent or Yearwood before he got here? Um if he, this is this this move, this firing was clearly on Thelwell's mind um, at the time that he was arranging this move. I would, it would be very interesting. I don't think we'll ever know, but it will be very interesting to think about what those kind of conversations were. If he was telling you, like, "Hey, man, we've got this manager, but like, don't worry, like, I'm, I, the technical direct, former technical director of Wolves, will actually be coaching or like managing you. Don't worry about it." Um, and there, there was also that story of. Um, that I think Ross Haley picked out of the Danish press and ran through translator for once a Metro talking about kind of Jensen or quoting Jensen's difficulties being here during COVID season and kind of him and Mm -hmm. Jorgensen kind of trying to settle in or Jorgensen babysitting his newborn and and how that's been difficult. Um, and I can imagine sort of, uh, maybe in blue skies getting sort of petulantly scapegoated and benched for weak reasons would be moderately frustrating. But if he's already having a difficult time being isolated from his family in Denmark and can't travel to them, maybe that's another thing that makes Thelwell be like, okay, look, I need, I need to, I need to reassure this number one that I bought that he's going to be okay. Cause even though this club has weird numbers, you know, Robles was not number one at, at any <laughs> point he was here. Jensen still showed up and claimed number one and was allowed to take the number one shirt. So I think Jensen clearly has the idea, at least that he was being signed as number one. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's been signed from, I can't, I can't remember what his, you know, whether he was in the doghouse as a starter or not, but he's been signed from a, you know, reasonably decent station in Europe in the prime of his career. Um, yeah. All those yeah. clubs, whenever I try to imagine those clubs, it's always just, Midgetland or Midgetland. Well, I think he literally, yeah, he literally is from Midgetland. Yeah, him and Royer. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Um, he's from, no from Midgetland and not, not Norgeland and not uh, 
Yo, sundry ice cream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All these Honestly, at a certain point, you could get away with any pronunciation. No Silkeborg. Yeah. At a certain point, yeah. every club in Denmark and Switzerland <laughs> is Midtjylland. And, and like half of the clubs in the Netherlands and Belgium are also Midtjylland. Like they're all, it's all Midtjylland all the way down. Um, but yeah, I guess there's this, I suppose, doesn't have as much like textual backup in the press conference and stuff as the other things we've been saying, but maybe just more based an extension of our, of what we've been talking about for the last whole year, which it, it does feel like reading in between the lines and just continuing our, our line of analysis that apparently has been sort of on point um, that there's a sense of, maybe like Armis sort of getting a little bit more aggressive and petty the last month may have accelerated things. I'm also seeing like random people on the RBNY subreddit and like Twitter sort of mentioning this, that like, you know, okay, we are, we kind of knew that we weren't doing hot, whether that's the, the ownership or rosters fault or the manager's fault, whatever people disagree about that, but there was sort of agreement, at least we're not doing very well, but to see Armis come out after like the city game and be like, actually, this is great. Fuck you guys. Does seem to have like crossed a Rubicon of some sort. And, uh, maybe like off this Jensen speculation that I was just laying out, maybe there's some sort of spoiling or, or rotting going on where this kind of, uh, petulance maybe was sort of an issue and then you do peaches you mentioned the Iva story and lawless also coming to armis's defense where maybe there was a feeling where where all of a sudden people were trying to like take aim at the ownership and and Thelwell and sort of driving the sudden distinction between armis and the rest of the club but kind of may have accelerated things because the, the day before that the firing was announced i posted this like little like simple joke uh pyramid graph like trying to get at the point that like one of my frustrations from the last year is that oftentimes people will you know extend the blame when when a club's not doing well it makes sense to extend the blame pretty much all the way up the pyramid basically right like yeah sure at the end of the day the buck the buck stops with the owner the owner's in charge of hiring the guys who hire the manager and not firing them so if you want to be rad at Red Bull, you know, I am mad at Red Bull, actually, kind of for letting this continue as long as it did. The thing that didn't make sense to me, though, is doing this weird, bizarre carve out for Armas that was appearing. And Ivis's article or column also actually kind of is convenient or I almost kind of like that he wrote it because it is a very decent screenshot of like that argument that I can point to it and say, I'm not insane. People have been saying this and it makes no sense. So I do wonder if that appearing kind of made Thelwell also be like, fuck this. We got it. Well, I think at the end of the Uh, day, his, his job is to, I mean, people will hate this, but uh, his job is to kind of defend his owners to, to, to do a good job on behalf of the people who hire him. And if, you know, there's people out there, if there's a narrative gathering that it's, you know, everybody's, you know, at his, the people who are in trust him's fault. Um, and there's a clear way for him to make clear that that's not the case. He's, he's going to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. The, uh, well, I, w- I would also, I guess, caution kind of the, the causality of our, the, the nature with which our miss has been, um, you know, defensive or, you know, I, I think as you said, petulant to some extent that, th- 
I, I would think now that, that I've had a lot of time to decompress over it, that Armis has been reacting to something um, that's been kind of going on and been talking uh, or what, whatever's been going on um, with the front office. I mean, like, ultimately, like, yeah, the 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 blame and the way that it's been shifted is, is really weird. But I think, like, the way that he's come out with the narratives of, like, oh, it gets real quiet when we win and that yeah. kind of stuff. You know that that I, I would say that's caused by something else um, to to a weird extent. Not not to say that you know like that could have been um, one of one of the points where it was just like all right, this guy is done. But like I think maybe all right, this guy is done led to to comments like that. And um, I'm I'm not even really sure what like the press aspect has to do with it. Like I don't really think that Armis is the type of person who would have just kind of like a giant media machine either. Um, no, just I mean as right, the, exactly. the, the converse of our questions and our points about who is the media is that there there also is not really any media for Armis or his agent or whoever or whatever to leverage. I don't think Armis is is like. In beds with Alexi Lawless. Like, yeah, email. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, to, like maybe he like, you know, maybe he texts with Alexi randomly sometimes and they're just sort of like, or, you know, organically colleagues and buds. I think that, I think to the extent that like there is sort of this, this widespread sympathy for him, it's that he's, he is co- a longtime colleague of a lot of these guys and they kind of vouch for him on that front. But like, I certainly don't think there's like a, you know, like, sending out talking points or anything like that like no i don't think so but yeah it's it's just organic solidarity with a yeah a peer yeah a contemporary yeah well i think that the the interesting thing about kind of the media narratives at least leading up to the the armist firing was the the way that everyone um who is kind of established within the scene was shifting blame towards dennis hamlet um and, you know, like we, we amongst ourselves have often talked about, like, obviously the squad building isn't just two people entirely alien to each other who don't speak about anything. But um, it, it is, I think, interesting that Dennis Hamlet is still here and that mm-hmm. Armis isn't. Yeah, that, Hamlet in, watches in that, his back, definitely. doesn't he? He's, 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 not, he's not totally naive, which makes sense, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, it would have been, if, you know, he, it's, it's been strange because, yeah, he literally kind of had his job... Uh, he kept his job while being demoted at the same time when Thelwell came in. Uh, and it would have, you know, you would have thought his job is somewhat redundant until now. Um, you know, or like uh, tied at least to that administration. What's that? Or like you would have thought that Hamlet's tied to the Armist administration. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that, yeah, there would have been kind of like a package thing that whenever, you know, they decide to pull the plug on Armist, that, that Hamlet would have been part of the deal too. But, you know, I think it, it seems like a deal where, you know, yeah, the Hamlet Hamlet obviously still has something to offer. You know, Thelwell has said himself in, in earlier press conferences when since he's, you know, come in here that, that uh, Hamlet's going to be valuable as a as a resource for learning MLS, for learning North America, for um, you know just getting used to this new role. And you know you would you would think a lot of that would have maybe been accomplished in the last you know nine months, however long it's been. But um, maybe th- or uh, maybe Hamlet has you know a more long term uh, you know role to play at this club i think you know 
yeah, to, you know, to reiterate what I just said, I think, um, he probably is still useful to, to Red Bull as a whole, not even just Thelwell as kind of a big kind of resource in, in North America, being a Spanish speaking scout, you know, just that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's, and yeah, I mean, I think you read between the lines on, on what people left or which people left and who didn't, uh, this week, I think, uh, yeah, there's, there's been a determination that Hamlet belongs here and belongs as part of, you know, the project moving forward. Yeah. And yeah we'll see what that is. I have to I know. imagine he's still updating his resume and gave his agent yeah. a call though. <laughs> right. Well, sure. I, I was yeah. going to say like, I know that we, we, uh, topped off this episode saying that we're not being conspiratorial or anything, but like, if you'll allow me to put my tinfoil hat on for a second, like it, 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 I, I thought the most interesting part about kind of everything um, in, in the discourse, quote unquote, um, was pitting Hamlet against Armis. So I'm, I wonder if there's like smoke there um, to, to say that maybe Hamlet was like, you know, partially um, yeah. leading the, the crusade to say like, hey, like Armis isn't it to to the, his higher ups. Yeah, I mean, for all, I mean, yeah, it's it's even, yeah, our, de- our idea that Hamlet and Armis were a package is just based on them, you know, being, being colleagues and teammates in a lot of the same setups for a while. But like, you know, uh, you know, I don't. I hate all you guys, obviously, and we still we still course, show yeah. up every week, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But people from the outside probably think that we all like each other, and yeah, they don't know. They don't anything. even know about your yeah. beef with Sam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Sam and I haven't been able to be in the same room for years, so um, you know that that doesn't necessarily, yeah, mean that just because they've worked together for a long time that they're they're tight buddies, and that you know just because they both ended up in this, you know, kind of odd power structure when Jesse left. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily on the same page about everything. And maybe, maybe they were at one point, but in the, in the turbulence of the last couple of years and the decline of the team that might've changed, um, you know, maybe maybe there's no way for us to know. Basically what I'm saying is that I think that Hamlet thinks that Armis made him look bad and he threw him under the bus. Or at is, least he has, he has, he that could least, have been a factor, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or like even if he didn't throw him under the bus, I think it demonstrates he at least has the savvy to kind of like read the room and mm-hmm. make a case for himself, you know? Well, um, and like we talked about like the way that the power dynamics in this club work. Like I don't think Hamlet ever had the power to fire Armis this entire time. Maybe. Could be. Uh, yeah. That's because I was about to say for me personally, the the whole Armis Hamlet conjoined production thing was entirely basically a a, a product of him not firing Armis at any mm-hmm. point. Um, it, I, I, it wasn't necessarily that I saw anything explicit or said from Hamlet that indicated that they were ride or die for each other. I just thought that like the fact that he wasn't doing anything about it. And I guess he had that one comment about like, Oh, I'm going to go to my ownership to get players that felt kind of whacked me. But yeah, it was pretty much just like the uh, lack of anything to the alternative. So, um, yeah, it, it felt like, um, I mean, when, you know, way back, I feel what it feels like way back was, you know, Jesse and Ollie Curtis were these two kind of big forces, uh, as both manager and, uh, sporting director. Uh, and there were clashes, you know, as we kind of speculated, uh, or at least differences in opinion or ideology. And then Ali Curtis leaves. And, and I think Jesse expanded his role or at least his influence uh, as much as he could just as a coach. And I think he hired somebody like Hamlet or had someone like Hamlet in that role. And I think it worked really well because he didn't 
I don't think he is as combative or as strong of a voice. And I think we all kind of speculated that Jesse was the larger player in the operations. Um, and, and I feel like it's, I don't know. I look at Hamlet now, um, and, I, and I still kind of see him that way, um, where you know, he's, I don't think he's anything special or remarkable. Um, and I, I don't know if I see him as like in cahoots or like with, you know, with Chris. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I see his importance or necessity, you know, as we look to hire a new coach. Uh, so I'm really kind of curious as to like what his, you know, what, what his duration at the club is going to be, you know, once, you know, Thelwell makes a decision at the, at the coaching level. Yeah. I think like you, uh, almost alluded to it in, in, um, by what you said, Sam, in that like Dennis Hamlet had use when Jesse Marsh was coach and there was someone who was calling all the calls and he could, you know, get Do the papers that, pushed though? and sign to Parker. I mean, like, you know, I, I don't I know. I think the one thing we know. I think the one thing we know is that Dennis Hamlet surely had a use as a body to fill Ali Curtis's void when he wanted him gone. Much as uh, Chris Armis had a use as a body to fill his own void when he was gone. Like, yeah. that, you know, I guess maybe to balance out our, our Jesse stuff sometimes and dish a little bit to his way it's it's apparent that he's a climber and yeah i think he'd admit that maybe privately but like you know it it, he he absolutely i think in hindsight was just like yeah sure hire chris whatever it'll be fine because it was a way for him to get over to leipzig and maybe that's kind of what the case was with hamlet as well it was like he he knew he wanted ollie out he knew he might maybe he knew he would basically do the the sporting director job anyway so he's like sure whatever put dennis there yeah, wasn't because Jesse just thought Hamlet was a budding executive and just couldn't wait to get him upstairs. I think it was yeah, yeah. because he he yeah. wasn't getting what he wanted out of Curtis. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with you that like I don't know if Hamlet's necessarily good at being like a sporting director or, or whatever his role is. But I think having someone, you know, like tell him what to do is like his his role almost you know like if Thelwell tells him hey like do this make this happen um I think you know it's not going to be met with um as much resistance so in like that way he's useful yeah I am sort of this without getting into full-on speculation of managers which is probably another episode I'm I'm wondering now who might be the like Steve Bold or like the you know the bullpen coach who's like still around uh like that provides the continuity For every staff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe Wally it's Preston Burpo. Maybe it's Preston Burpo. Burpo. <laughs> maybe it's the Ruizes. Um, maybe it's, I mean, cause like it, it, to, in terms of like knowing their way, knowing the players' personalities and knowing their way around the facility and stuff, the, the Ruizes will certainly have that down pat. Maybe it's, uh, Tony Joe, I've never had to pronounce. That. Yeah, well, he yeah, jo- Joao, Joao. It's it's Jason Pendant and then Tony Joao. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, he's he seems to have stuck around. I don't know if he if he's pre- I don't think he's pre Marsh, but uh, but yeah, he clearly he seems to be kind of like yeah, club furniture now. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm trying to do a power map of maybe what what the Thelwell unit is i think i see thelwell patel and paul fernie the new scouting guy right is like maybe mm-hmm. his crew and then who's who's the who works for patel it's ewan something i think he's oh yeah that's right there's yeah another name he's mentioned. her like 
assistant analyst, right? So like that might be a unit. So like I guess maybe Sam, to your to what you were kind of sketching out, I could yeah, I could maybe see a scenario where like there might be like sort of the Thelwell central brain trust, and that that might not be in conflict with Hamlet. Uh, and maybe it's more harmonious to leave that be. We'll see. Mm. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, Ham, Hamlet. Ham, you know, even even if Thelwell and and his crew are just the sharpest, most like you know, in some of their cases, literally like have degrees in soccer and sports science, um, they don't necessarily know a lot of the ins and outs of of MLS. Uh, not, not just the roster rules and all that kind of stuff, but just you know the the landscape of of players and coaches and agents and how the different leagues are in hierarchy and stuff like that. And just knowing the landscape and being you know a scout in in the broader you know North American Concacaf region, which yeah. is where you know we're going to be getting a decent part of the roster, regardless of what uh, you know who Thelwell might be bringing in from from England and Europe. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I can, you know, may, maybe, maybe Hamlet is just around to maintain some, some continuity for a little bit longer and stuff like that. But I can, I can see some spaces where, you know, a, a person with Hamlet's background, Hamlet's profile can still be valuable to the club. Yeah. Hamlet, I mean, Thelwell does not know how to order, place a mass order in cash for uh, ski trip, ski trip resorts from Ramsey Sports uh, in exchange <laughs> yeah. for a bunch of pennies. Um, yeah, exactly. Most, most important uh, role on the squad. Uh, can we? I, without, I tried to avoid talking about individual performances on Philly per se, as like you know, with all the disclaimers of it being a recoil game. But I do think maybe we could talk about like midfielders a little bit because I think like there's there's some longer term uh, speculation or analysis maybe to be had about midfielders, maybe even a couple forwards. Uh, based on, I think, kind of picking up on the thread of addition by subtraction due to a confluence of injuries to Riza and Davis and, you know, uh, Yearwood not really being ready, I guess, as it was. We see Florian Velo uh, start kind of as the number eight next to CCJ, uh, which, you know, once again, Velo, I think, is just like the utility knife of the squad. He played left back once, I think, when everyone got injured. Um, And... You know he doesn't. He doesn't. He's just an all-around player. Yeah. yeah. Like so. Like I don't. I don't think Velo will ever play that position again. But I think it's sort of. Uh, and you know his his failure to track back uh, is what kind of sort of leads to the first goal. Even though it is yeah. a really good finish, it must be said. But you know, so I'm not gonna. I'm not super worried that he fucked up that marking because I don't think he'll really ever play it again. But I do think that just like Velo's a, a baseline smart and and versatile player, and even in his sort of improvised performance as the eight next to CCJ, there, I think we I I tentatively see a small little proof of concept of maybe fixing CCJ and maybe Davis and maybe those the midfield in general by just removing the complicated crap that must have been given to them because i do think you see velo just being told very basically play the eight and ccj playing something more resembling play the six because you see velo uh kind of working and pairing with him a little bit more clearly than than we're used to velo is not great as i said at that position ccj still is kind of has some rust to knock off because i think one thing i've been worried about is that ccj really never got a true start at this place he was kind of this big lauded next talent 
uh, we kind of get that early canary in the coal mine where the first time he ever plays, it's next to Adams against that Houston, uh, in, against Houston, that 2018 game instead of in place of him. There was, there was um, the quote from Jesse that when he was still here, that Caceres was farther along than Adams. Right. That he was like even worried about maybe, yeah. maybe taking it too slow. Instead, we kind of see him never really get like a consistent role or, or play. And I think it, it does not seem, in my opinion, to have been good for his morale or development as a young player, but he's only 20. Um, and I believe he's still cheap. He's still, you know, Venezuelan youth international mm-hmm. comes from like a, a sporting family. His dad was a youth, was a Venezuelan international. Um, so it's possible that maybe his, his the damage is done but just from this brief play i think i saw that velo and him just by cutting out all the crap were able to be a little bit more coherent and legible and i think you also see kaku being able to turn and play vertically much more than he has been recently um and i think this this is potentially promising because one of the weirder and uglier things of that DC, like somebody published a stat map, one of those composite stat packages they put together against the DC game. And every, a lot of our midfielders are clumped at the top. And everyone, was, in addition to just like rotating around the sides, everyone was funneling it into Davis. And Davis was just on the ball and trying to make these passes, which is not what he should be doing and not what he's good. Davis is, whether he was working with uh, Sasha or like uh, Kaku last year, or two years ago, he's always been the best kind of being 10 to 15 yards away from one of the other guys who's really keyed in and kind of a protagonist and providing a release valve and shuttler. So I think one of the biggest problems of the last year has been Armas kind of trying to make Davis into more of a protagonist and say, here, go do this. And him doing that in his own weird garbled way with CCJ and both of them being confused. So I'm hopeful that like a competent manager could maybe resuscitate both those guys or at the very least insert Yearwood into that midfield in a coherent way. I guess the question that I meant to lead with then is like of those guys of Yearwood, Davis, CCJ, I guess Stroud who also plays or a potential other midfielder, like what, what would you think could be the shape of that or, or uh, should be? I think it's the, what happens with CG, CCJ really is pivotal because it could very well be that he, that Thalwell just doesn't rate him. He's not his guy. He didn't sign him um, and just doesn't see him projecting out. And he's just going to try and, you know, just kind of wait it out for the next few months and then move him in the off season that maybe that's the case. But if CCJ stays around and he still thinks there's something salvageable there, which, you know, myself having watched him in the limited minutes you discussed over the last few years, you know, I think there might be something salvageable there with him. I think he's talented and I don't think he has been used properly. Um, you know, I think my personal, uh, you know, gut feeling on what the new midfield should new midfield should look like um if ccj stays is him um playing in a more you know deeper six role and i think from what i know of yearwood um that he might be the more you know forward moving player who links with the attack um because ccj's game that he hasn't necessarily been been able to show as much here, but you saw it when we first signed him from his clips with like, uh, you know, the Venezuela youth teams and stuff like that is that he's kind of a quarterback. He's kind of a guy who sits, you know, at the base of midfield and his, his best technique is spraying the ball around and hitting long passes. And, you know, that kind of resulted in, in him. I think, I think a big, 
I think what I think a, a, pro, or a, a genesis of some of the tactical confusion around his role under Armas was that he scored because his striking technique is so good. He scored a couple of long range goals that were pretty impressive and saved us in games. And I think Armas really thought that if he moved him further up the field and closer to goal, that would happen more often, regardless of how coherent <laughs> yeah. it was with the broader team setup. Um, and regardless of how coherent it was for Caceres's development. Um, so, uh, I think if he stays around and you still want to build something out of him, I think, yeah, you have to let him sort of be the, uh, the kind of the base of the midfield while Yearwood moves forward a bit more. And then, like you said, Brett, you know, Davis is, uh, you know, his best moments and best stretches with the team have been when he's a more peripheral player in the midfield. And I think, I think he's, I, you know, I don't, I think he's more, like you said, he's, he's more of a linking player and he's, he's more of an intuitive attacker than an intuitive sort of circulator. Um, mm-hmm. I think when he's, when he's for, when he was further up the field in that formation with Sasha, like you were saying um, in, in 2017, when Jesse had that, you know, three, six, one or whatever, um, you know, that was a situation where, yeah, the things were moving so quick in the final third already that hit that, you know, he, he, his decisions were made up for him and, you know, he can make these kind of just intuitive quick touches on the ball. Whereas now, like you're saying, when he's just being, you know, given the ball and forced to make decisions himself for the rest of the team and hasn't computed as well. So maybe if, like I said, we, we see more of a, of a Caceres Yearwood midfield in the middle, maybe Davis moves back to a more advanced role again, maybe being kind of like a rotation, you know, uh, 10 slash wide player a little bit more again, like he yeah. was when he was younger. Well, you know that I disagree with you um, about like the way that CCJ has played. I think he's more of a late runner um, and, and that kind of player. To get the way that the he box. has played or the way that he should play, you think? Both. Um, I think like what I've seen from him is like that he is hungry to move forward, um, especially when he's been freer um, kind of earlier in his tenure here. Like he, he's always had kind of a, a, a nose, I think, for moving forward. Um, and but I think to, like, be, to Cork's point, that's premised on starting in a more reserved position, no? I no, I don't think so. I think it, I think it's more of like, I think he is more of the box to box. But I, I like at the end of the day, I just don't think we really have a six on this team. Um, I think like maybe the the answer in the future might be someone like John Tolkien. But um, uh, for all intents and purposes, I think like the 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 midfield like two pairing for me would be Yearwood and Davis, um, and I think that honestly that Sean Davis is kind of like he, he I, I agree with you that I think he's better um, pushed up a little forward but uh, among the options that we have I think that he's the person that we slot in as kind of the deeper deep lying uh, midfielder and I think he has more of those skills in that position well hey bringing it back to the zone maybe I think one good thing is that maybe not this season, maybe not the next couple of games, but I think that it will be more possible to evaluate this now. It's the biggest problem with like CCJ as trying to watch him as a, a fan or, or an analyst is, is last year it's, it's not even been clear. Is he failing at doing what Adams is doing? It's hard to tell mm. because he's not been yeah. asked to do the same thing. What is he being asked to mm-hmm. do? It's so hard to tell. Maybe we'll finally find out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the other player note I had for this game is that all notes taken that have been made that this game is a recoil game and, and ugly and bad. 
I, I do unfortunately have to say that Tom Barlow has a Tommy Redding esque performance here. I think um, <laughs> where mm. by Tommy Redding I mean the Orlando four three game where it was uh, such a disaster that like you know is the kind of thing where I you know you don't really even feel animus towards the guy and not really frustrated because it's just clear that this is kind of just everything that they have and it's just like oh it, it's okay it's just you know, it's not it's, working out yeah, yeah. it's just not working out sorry it's okay man and uh, I think Barlow just has that chance sort of at the end where you know he didn't he didn't have to make it you know he didn't have to score but he just kind of like scuffs it and like he doesn't like trip or anything and the ball doesn't like pop weird and he just doesn't hit it right as a professional and just kind of came back that like oh yeah this is a guy that didn't show up to the draft and i don't think was really even planning on becoming a pro pro player yeah yeah, like (laughs) jesse just got the idea of like yes or yeah. Yeah. He was, he, he's kind of a relic of a different time when we were a little more hubristic about our development capabilities. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I still think there are, I like, I like things about Barlow, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's, I don't think he's going to be a part of, of Thelwell's revolution. It's, and it's a little too late, I think in his career. Yeah. He's, he's yeah, low key old. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think at this point, like, um, if white is healthy enough to play as he did as a sub, that you know maybe just give any minutes should to definitely him. yeah yeah um all right well any any other notes i i do think i have an update to end this this uh, this episode it's a longer one but this is back to our roots i think it deserves to be a longer one maybe we can split <laughs> yeah. into two parts i but mean we had a lot to talk about um i i i just want to like end this by saying i i agree with everyone who's, who's also shared this sentiment but it's just like it feels nice to just like earnestly root for the team again, not like <laughs> thinking in the long term or short term anything, but just like, just like go yeah. Red Bulls type thing, you know, like it, it just feels really nice. Or like that, yeah. that tweet reply, like Kaku, Kaku's even back to himself. He was like, or he's like, I'm so sorry for, you know, the result, like Kaku posting again. And then Tete yeah. got in his mentions being like, don't worry, bro. Better times ahead. <laughs> I was like, the boys, they're back. They're back in town. <laughs> new boys that weren't even here before they're also back they, weren't they don't even, even know how back, back they are yeah exactly that's that's what makes them more beautiful or back i don't know but all right so if you've if you listen to the energy drink soccer show which is contractually congr- uh, obligated if you listen to the show so i know you do you you may have heard certain rumors of pat benjamin's demise i like to say that these may be exaggerated I don't have confirmation, but I do know that I have recently received correspondence from one P. Benjamin um, regarding the alluded to conversation between Kevin Thelwell and Chris Harmis. That Thelwell said that in due time, you know, maybe we'll hear about it later. You'll talk to the players, but then not to go into details. So last time I was speaking to everyone from Union Station, Chicago, and I was so gloriously interrupted by the announcements that lasted forever. But what do you know that one of those red caps that provide assistance for your luggage came to me once we finished that podcast, almost like they knew that I had to finish the podcast before we did it and provided me with, yes, a telegram. Train stations still have telegrams and uh, explained to me that it was addressed to me. I opened it up and inside was none other than a laser disc yes an entire laser disc addressed to me and promising uh signed from one p benjamin saying 
that he could not reveal his location or his safety or his health. But enclosed is the last known testimony between Lord Thelwell and Chris Armis in this meeting. So it goes something sort of like this. On the morning of Friday, uh, November, uh, it's not November, September, the, the, <laughs> whatever last Friday was, uh, Chris Armis woke up in a sweat. He just remembered that all of these weeks, this missing presence in his life that he thought would make his job so much easier was Josh Sims. He just knew that he needed Josh Sims again, and he just felt like a need for closure for why Josh Sims left. The fact that his loan naturally expired during a pandemic wasn't good enough for him. He knew something just wasn't right. Lo and behold, he walks out in his robe to get uh, his newspaper at his long, sloping um, driveway, as every driveway is in the tri-state area, if you watch the relevant media concerning that. Uh, (laughs) And he sees, uh, instead of the Newark uh, Star Eagle, um, which of course gets delivered to Long Island for him as well, as a loyal Red Bulls coach, a scroll, a bloody scroll, being dropped off by an enormous raven. This is the largest raven you've ever seen. And he goes, oh, that's pretty weird. Opens it up, and inside is a note, scribbled seemingly with a quill, promising him the whereabouts of one J. Sims. He looks at the uh, signature, and it's scribbled on some sort of runes. He's like, God, that's, that's sort of confusing. Then he gets a beep on his phone, he checks, he realizes that there was a team retreat scheduled today up at West Point. How could he forget? He loves scheduling team retreats up at West Point. So Armis gets in his car, sets up his easy pass on the long three hour drive up to West Point. It's all going well. He uh, gets his 10th punch card on his Panera Bread punch card, his favorite place to talk tactics before games. Um, so it's pretty good. He's got his big, big ass coffee. Uh, until he's going across the Tappan Zee Bridge and getting his easy pass ready to go, an easy pass that we uh, saw in a story recently that Jesse March personally acquired this easy pass for him so that he would take the job so he could drive from Nassau County to New Jersey every day. He's going over the new Mario Cuomo Governor Bridge. All of a sudden, the, the easy pass, it doesn't work. That's never happened to him before. He keeps driving through, but now he's got a knot in his stomach that he's going to have to pay by mail. He doesn't like to deal with the mail. He just got this weird note in the mail. It gives him creeps. It gives him the fear of responsibility. He's going on and all of a sudden his GPS tells him to take a different turn. Don't go to West Point. Go off to Bear Mountain instead. And all along these deep, deep, steep paths, he sees a tunnel of trees that eventually get darker and darker and darker. And all of a sudden, in the shadows, he sees a silhouette of, is it a bull? A bull standing in the woods. He screeches to a halt just before he makes contact with the bull. But then he, when he looks up, there's nothing there. He thinks he's going crazy and he keeps on going until eventually he arrives at the gate. That is actually labeled the West Point uh, you know, cadet uh, training facility. So he gets there and he thinks it's all normal and he begins to ask where, uh, get out of the car and ask where Dennis Hamlin might be. And uh, the guy standing guard near the gate at this training facility actually says, Dennis Hamlet, sir, this is Lord Thelwell's private property. I said, Thelwell? Thelwell's behind this? Okay, that's sort of weird. And he's like, all right, well, I gotta find Sims. Is there a, is there a, a check-in log anywhere around here? 
says, ah, aye, sir. Just come over here and, and, and scrib, scribe your Christian name and uh, your first name over here, and we'll be right there. And he reads the log. He sees different names written, such as Muhammad Keita, of course. Where is he not? And uh, Janino Pernambuco, Medi Bellucci. He reads these aloud. He says, these names are here? He said, aye, well, they are quite old, aren't they? Back in the days when vague possession play was more of a style in these parts. Armis doesn't understand this. He keeps walking by. He's looking for, trying to find Josh Sims after all. He walks by and he sees a familiar face, finally, after wandering through this big, ancient, seemingly semi-abandoned training facility dotted with soccer fields and some sort of barracks and dorms. And he sees John Wallenek, finally. A familiar face. But he's standing around this weird pole with ribbons coming off of it. And it's all the RB2 players kind of just standing, getting ready. And Chris Armis goes, ah, oh, fuck. I knew I should have learned these guys' names eventually. Are you, are you Omir? He says to all the little guys dancing around. <laughs> Nobody answers. He's like, oh, I guess you're not Omir. I guess you were <laughs> Tolkien or So or Scarlet or Stroud. I don't know, one of the ass names. Which honestly, Chris, I, I empathize. He goes to speak to <laughs> Wallenek, but Wallenek then bursts into song and all the players start shaking the ribbons. And it's a song about seemingly the circle of life and and the press and, and the press generating chances out of the defense and defense being inherently linked to offense and trying to control the different phases of the game. And it just seems heretical to Chris Armis. He doesn't, he finds it very deeply upsetting. But he asks Wallenek if he's seen Josh Sims anywhere. And he does break out of his trance for a second and gesture towards uh, the, uh, the old uh, film room on site. It's kind of an abandoned, you know, uh, film room that kind of has like a monastery feel to it where it's just got tapes and tapes of tapes labeled 2008, 2009 Barcelona. Um, there's even a really old film reel that says like, you know, 1970 Ajax and, and that kind of weird fucked up shit, you know? Um, and then he sees in the corner, he sees, he sees what appears to be Josh Sims and a whimper. He says, I, Mr. Hermes, are you here? Are you here to save me and play quality class possession football? He says, yes, Josh, finally, you get it. You understand. We need to slow down the attack in the final third. Why doesn't anyone listen to me? Except it was much more jumbled, you know, in the style of arms. Um, and he says, I thank you, Mr. Hermes. Follow me, follow me here. And he runs out towards the cliff. And now he's towards pretty close to the Hudson River, towards kind of like a, the, you know, actual part of like Bear Mountain that's starting to get the views. And he's like, just, it's a little bit further, Mr. Armis. Chris Armis, of course, runs a marathon every other day. He's as fit as could be. And finally, when he gets to the cliff that he promises uh, Armis will, will free him and reveal all, he, he rounds the corner and he feels a, a sort of foreboding doom. And all of a sudden he sees, is that Kevin Thelwell? It is. And behind him though is, is Dennis Hamlet and Bradley Carnell. What are they all doing here? Why weren't they responding to any of the emails? Or he was trying to send them a, a, a Yo app. You know, remember the app Yo, where all you could say was Yo? <laughs> Send them 80 of those and they didn't Yo back. <laughs> she always thought it was very rude. <laughs> but he's sitting there and he's like, ah, finally, Josh, 
did these guys do this to you? I, I'm sorry, like I tried to explain to Kevin that he should have extended your loan and really just done nothing else but to sign you. And, and Josh looks at him with his big West Country eyes, says, I'm sorry, Mr. Armas. And he runs over into Kevin Thalwell's arms. And he says, did I do it good, Mr. Thalwell? Mr. Lord Thalwell? And he says, aye, son, you did good. Now you can go back to Southampton. And in a second, Sims disappears into thin air. Pretty creepy, Armis thinks, but you know, whatever. But maybe that's how they do things in, in Wales. And he says, oh gosh, uh, you know, I was getting kind of pissed though. Kevin, I, I just really think it's not fair that you're not providing me with a quality side and DPs like Josh Sims. And I think it's just really uh, annoying that you're making Sims sort of this martyr uh, of the team and what could have been. To which Thelwell looks up deep in his big baggy eyes and says, Nay, laddie, Josh Sims is not the martyr. You are. He brought you here. For you are the perfect representative of our task here at Red Bull, where you represent the spirit of Metro, despite never having played for Metro before. And you represent the spirit of possession football, despite not even knowing what possession football is. Chris is starting to sweat and says, no, no, this can't be. I, I believe in the, I believe in hustle and fight, glory, fight, love, passion. How could this be? And he says, I, Perfect, it is time, then you shall glory fight, love and passion with your appointment with the Red Bull. Come, it is time. All of a sudden, the masses of the entire first team appear behind Hamlet and Bradley Carnell. To which Bradley Carnell says, Chris, I'm Bradley Carnell. That's, it, that's all he said. He just said, he just announced his presence. Chris, I don't know what's going on yet. You're quite either. He just told me to show up here. I think it's going to be all right. <laughs> he didn't actually know. Carnell had not gotten the memo yet. Hamlet, though, stayed quiet. Hamlet has not been found. Royer, though, looks like he's been crying for 12 hours. And uh, Tim Parker, though, looks, looks extremely stoned. Um, but they begin to mark, march slowly but surely. And there begins to be sort of drum. And then, is it, is it a music? Are there horns coming in? How could it be? And then, all of a sudden, Lord Thelwell himself begins to break into this sort of deep, ancient, presumably Welsh song, starting. The Red Bull is a coming in. Loudly sing moo moo. Press and press and press and press. Springs the press anew. And he's singing it and he's singing it. And they repeat over and over again as they push Chris Armis over a rest, a, a, a ridge to a field where he sees with his giant horror a large wicker construction of a red bull. To which he screams, Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! And is put within the Red Bull. And this is where Pat Benjamin's telegram comes off. And that's the last time Chris Armis has ever been seen in the giant I, Red Bull. Why? 
why did you hide the only information we've had from a tier one journalist this entire episode? We have to reframe every single thing we've talked about. That was not just a journalist, right? This was said in confidence. But also, can I have your laser disc player? Yeah, no, it's that's also send you the accompanying music that it goes along with that. But that's an okay. original story. Well, I mean, it's an original story because it actually happened. Um, and right. Pat Benjamin recorded it on the Laserdisc. Um, but, but, but we yeah. talked for an hour about what happened and you knew what happened. But as you can see, Bradley Carnell still didn't really know what was going on. We don't know. We know that there's some sort of deep ancient rite that's being restored after the heretical religion of, of um, possession. possession and that Total we have to football. return to the Red Bull and praise the Red Bull. Um, but just like you held this from us for an hour. All the lives that could have been saved. <laughs> we yeah. like talked about nothing for an hour and you had the answers. We're all just Bradley Carnell in this, all right? We're just going to be filled in later, all right? Chris! <laughs> we, 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 yeah, we all really need to adopt the Bradley Carnell mindset for the next few months, I think. That's that true, be, yeah. Yeah, a really <laughs> healthy approach. shouting your name <laughs> yeah. every time you <laughs> did you, uh, did that? Did that story that remind you of the uh, 2006 uh, Nick Cage classic, The Wicker Man? <laughs> Or the 1973 one as well, because uh, it wasn't that. It was it was actually what happened. Pat Benjamin recorded it. We don't know if Pat Benjamin was killed when he recorded this information, but um, that's it confirmed. All of the haters were right. Chris Armis was actually killed out of a slavish devotion to a religious cult involving uh, the perpetual regeneration of attacking football through the press, which is, I think, actually a decent way of thinking about it. Honestly, like for uh, valorizing the Dutch that much, I think he had it coming. I yeah, and the Catalans. I mean, good God, really pressing your luck with that one, right? Yeah, just uh, hopefully our next coach will not be as impressed by uh, you know the Champions League, yeah, kind of <laughs> stuff like that. They'll they'll the, our our next coach will will be a connoisseur of of real football, so that'll be that'll right. be fun. The Welsh First Division, That's Swansea right. the, and Cardiff and and Newport the and New Saints and Airbus UK, yeah, for 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 uh, qualifying that and the the Irish First Division, whatever that's called. Well, okay, cool. So that was a good episode. Next episode, we'll talk about signing Gareth Bale. Yeah, everything's fixed. Good mm-hmm. job, everyone. Yeah, this is the last episode of the podcast. Yes, yeah. the finale. Of the <laughs> Are you pleased that it ended with an interminable twenty-minute of, yes. uh, of ritual sacrifice? <laughs> what it was all leading to. But it's Alex. <laughs> <laughs>